0: I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where fear has gone, there will be nothing. And only I will remain. That was the Litany Against Fear. One of the, probably the most popular quotes or takeaway from Frank Herbert's epic science fiction novel, Dune, which we are going to be talking about in not just one episode. Yeah, that's right. We're back on the multi-parts. multi-part multi-part, part, part, part part. you you thought we were done you thought we were doing single episodes you thought we'd stop doing all the stupid research well we're back, we're back to assail you we're
1: back on our bullshit baby back
0: on the bullshit, back on the bullshit so this will be part one in a trio of episodes about Dune, the books, the world and to some extent the movie diving into one of the most influential science fiction novels of... or well, novel series of all time.
1: And this is going to be um, a series of episodes where... Alex is going to be in the driving seat. Because I need to lay out my stall, confess my sins to the Bene Gesserit. Um, I have never read any of the Dune books. I have never seen the uh the the kind of the 80s film with Sting in it. Um I have never seen the documentary about Jodorowsky's uh failed Dune attempt, which we'll get into, and I had to watch the Villeneuve film twice. Um once originally in the cinema and once in preparation for this episode because the first time I saw it, um my friend and I were so inebriated that we don't, we didn't remember most of the film. We just remembered it being an incredible experience, um, but not the actual detail. So I have rewatched it. I, it's relatively fresh in my head. <laughs> I've got notes. I've got thoughts. you got Chalamet. <laughs> We've all got Chalamet. <laughs> um, but uh, this is going to be one where this is mostly drawing on alex's knowledge and relationship with this world
0: yeah uh i love the fact that you you censored yourself this time you didn't uh you didn't at the end of the last episode
1: about the, well you know my dad likes dune he might be listening
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah so my relationship with dune is um an interesting one because uh i weirdly first read it again against my mum's wishes um because she hates <laughs> dune with a passion. Um, but it's it's worth noting that um up until about the age of i think nine or ten um my mum used to still read books to me um because that's sweet yeah it was nice we used to used to, she used to read terry pratchett books to me and lots of science fiction and fantasy f- fantasy books And would be obviously i would read in my spare time as well but she'd still read to me um and one time i asked her to read june she was like no <laughs> She was like no it's a stupid book it's a stupid book uh, for boys, and it's rubbish, and it makes no sense.
1: So obviously, I had to read Did it you back up it. any further than that? <laughs> no.
0: Well, she she says that she gets she tries to read it because I I tell her to do do so. She tries to read it very often, and she says she's never got past the first hundred pages. So there you go. Whereas I read I read the first three. Well, I read June maybe once a year, and every couple of years I read the first three because they're the ones that aren't mad but I am uh, digressing to talk too much about my wonderful mother so let's talk about Dune instead a book about a boy and his mother <laughs> it's true <laughs> it's true um so uh for context if you don't know what Dune is Dune is th- was first published in 1965 it's an epic science fiction novel by a fella called Frank Herbert um published originally in a magazine as two uh serialized uh, features it tied for the Hugo Award in 1966 and won the Nebula Award for Best Novel. Also, the first part of the Dune Chronicles, as I alluded to, which is the uh, a whole load of books. Um, and it's fair to say that Dune is the inspiration of and the progenitor of an absolute avalanche of science fiction works some we've spoken about on this podcast including uh, Warhammer 40,000 and Star Wars but also The Wheel of Time series The Expanse Babylon 5 uh, and and loads and loads more the story is set in a far flung distant future and covers the sort of the dying gasps of a galactic empire ruled over by noble houses controlling planetary fiefs for a uh, emperor who is distant and all-commanding. Now, Herbert wrote five sequels, um, which, it's fair to say, each became a bit weirder than the last. And then after his death, his son Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson continued the series by, um, in my words, this is my words from the notes here, <laughs> by ruining it further. So the, the, the ones that, that you want to read if you want to get the best of Dune are generally uh, thought of as uh, Dune Messiah, Children of Dune and God Emperor of Dune they're the three that come after Dune the first um, God Emperor of Dune is an interesting one because uh, spoilers skip forward twice if you don't want to hear this Paul, Paul Atreides the main character in Dune, his grandson becomes Emperor and turns himself into a giant psychic space worm and that's, that's, the no- that's considered one of the more normal books so uh, yeah <laughs> um,
1: I know this is an audio medium But as soon as you said that sentence, um, a a big smile went across my face. I
0: mean, who doesn't love a giant psychic space worm? So the uh, the book, although beloved, had there were a lot of problems adapting it. The film adaptations faced difficulties with budget and structure, and trying to fit it all in to one piece. Um, there were cancelled projects David Lynch's film although now a cult classic was reviewed mixed, had mixed reviews at the time of its launch
1: uh, is that the one with Sting in Metal Underpants?
0: yes and then there was right. a 2000 uh, miniseries uh, which I didn't know existed until I started adding up research for all the failed adaptations uh, and then we have the film it, the two films I believe are duopoly isn't it going to be of Dune 1 and Dune 2
1: yeah, well, the, the film definitely doesn't make it all the way through the first book. Yeah, um, yeah. Judge it, well, having never read it, but judging by the synopses that
0: I've <laughs> checked out. Yeah, so uh, Villeneuve's book... Uh, Villeneuve's adaptation covers the first half of the novel. with The sequel uh, originally planned to be launched end of 2023, but now pushed into next year. And yeah, it's... Uh... I remember going to see the film at the cinema, and I was I was thoroughly impressed with the way it presented the uh, presented the the world. But it does miss some of the things that make Herbert's book really interesting. Um, and one of those things that we're talking about in this part one of the June uh, episodes we're doing is that um, Herbert's book kind of in su- in the way that I've written in- I've written it in our notes as being an anti sci-fi book, and that's mostly because Herbert wrote it at a time when a lot of pulp sci-fi was very either sanitized, secular, um, very sort of, like, uh, deterministic in nature. Um, He was something of a pioneer in that he changed it into the ideas of, you know, the actions of small people, how religion, society, um, heroes, villains, um, can change uh can can enact wide scale change even in a setting as, as enormous as you know a galactic empire and to be fair for a series that is based around and in a, a galaxy spanning empire a good 95 percent of the the series books and probably the film take place on one planet and is focused on that planet
1: yeah and, and thematically something that i was struck by and i i, I don't want to jump the gun here but Felt a lot like a fantasy story, mm. um, you know, played out through the the medium of you know of, of science fiction because it's feudal politics. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's colonialism. It's you know, it's it's all that that kind of very temporal human stuff mm. as opposed to technological.
0: Yeah, I think that it's very different at a time when science fiction is very much about concept and about technology and about, you know, man's relation to larger sort of technological and political um, concepts and the rise and fall of empires and starships and hard sci-fi and how does this work and how does this fly in space? Whereas most for mostly, most most of what Herbert writes is pretty much kind of vibes um, and it's because he, he wants to talk more about uh, the ecology of a desert planet. Um, but before we do themes, we do plot, uh, and we will fly through the plot of Dune. Uh, it's not by any means a hefty book, but there's a lot to it. Um, but we will condense it as much as possible uh, and remove... Well, there'll still be spoilers, but if you've seen the film, you know what's what's happened roughly. Uh, and I will tag spoilers if you are looking forward to seeing the second half of the book. Played in this on-screen next year. So, the plot of the first June book. Here we go. So, Duke Leto Atreides is a feudal ruler in this galaxy-spanning part of this galaxy-spanning empire we talked about. Um, ruler of the planet. Uh, I've forgotten the name of the planet. I'll edit this bit out. I can't be bothered to look it up. <laughs> Ruler of a wet planet. No, ruler of a wet planet. Um, the planet they're from doesn't matter, actually. Uh, but what does matter is that he and his family, and his family's servants and, and, uh, and armies and dependents are assigned to rule over the desert planet Arrakis. Uh, Arrakis is extremely important to the entire empire because it's the only source of melange, also known as spice. Uh, a valuable substance that extends life, enables interstellar travel, can make people have uh, psychic uh, f- foreshadowing dreams. It's a very much a one-size-does-everything one, one size does everything kind of drug. It also is the thing keeping the entire planet of Arrakis going. Now, they've not been assigned to the richest planet in the galaxy for no reason. Uh, it is, in fact, a trap. The Emperor and the the Atreides' Rival house Harkonnen has conspired to destroy them uh, But Leto obeys the assignment anyway out of a sense of honor despite knowing it was going to be a trap Leto's concubine, not wife, Lady Jessica, is a member of the Ben Jeseriot Which is a society of all-women spies, nuns, scientists uh, Who use genetic experimentation, political interference and all kinds of religious engineering to further their own agenda of ascending the human race and basically creating a prophet known as the Kwisatz Haderach. Um, now Jessica, who isn't Leto's wife because she is a member of this society, has a son, Paul. Uh, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're, gonna have to, you're gonna have to get over that. It took me a long time. It took me a long time to get over. Get over. Paul being the name of this, being the name of the main character of this sci fi story, but here you go. This psychic space messiah, Paul. (laughs) It's just such a boring name. Um, Yeah, so the. The dread captain, Tim. (laughs) Exactly. Come and meet meet the prophet and the head of our entire society, Paul. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Paul is immediately special because. Lady Jessica was supposed to have a daughter, uh, and she was in fact ordered to have a daughter, but has a son. Um, As the scion of a noble house, Paul receives training in warfare, politics, and then also gets Ben training from uh, his mother and uh, various other mentors uh, set up by her. On Arrakis, as predicted, uh, Duke Leto is betrayed and killed, and Jessica and Paul have to escape into the deserts of the planet and there they encounter the Fremen, the dune's indigenous population who live in underground cities in the, uh, the plateauy, rocky areas of the planet that aren't covered in huge uh, sand, sand dunes, deserts.
1: And if this mention of indigeneity and um, desert populations and the portrayal of them piques your interest, well, tune in to the next episode where we're going to be digging into that aspect of dune.
0: Yes, a, n- a nice early flag to raise there, Kiel, uh, because, um, yeah, I know there'll be people who'll be listening get about two-thirds of the way through this episode, but you haven't talked about it. We're going to talk about the Fremen, don't worry. We're going to talk about the Fremen, we're going to talk about the Middle Eastern influence of this book, we're going to talk about all that in the second episode. But this one's mainly about anti-sci-fi. So, uh, while Paul's out in the desert, he uh, he vibes pretty well with it. Uh, the spice... Uh, affects him in a unique way, giving him extraordinary powers, including uh, prophetic visions. Uh, using these, uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to think. Like using these, he takes a lover. No, he doesn't. He doesn't use his prophetic powers to to entrap someone, but uh, he does use his prophetic powers to uh, become respected by the Fremen and develops a relationship with uh, Chani, a member of the Fremen tribe. Uh, that they uh, in, are ensconced with, uh, and through um, through the use of his powers and his kind of um, arguably white savior um, uh, abilities, he becomes and is proclaimed the prof- prophesied Messiah of the Fremen, the Moadib. Um, him and Chani also have a son called Leto the uh, Second. The hunt for Paul. <laughs> That for Paul um, uh, continues and the conflict escalates across the planet of Arrakis as uh, Baron Harkonnen, his family, try to hunt down the last vestiges of House Atreides. Uh, meanwhile, Paul gears the Fremen up for a planet wide uh, conflict. Uh, Paul then Paul then increases his precognitive power by drinking something known as the Water of Life, uh, fulfilling the prophecy and becoming the Kwisatz Haderach. Um, and then, uh, in, ca- in case these light, very light and skimmy spoilers weren't enough for you now, again, like I, like I said on a few episodes, press the little skip forward 15 seconds button a couple of times if you don't want to hear what's coming up. Here it goes. Uh, Paul becomes the leader of the Fremen and then uh, operates a successful offensive against both the Harkonnen and the Emperor's troops known as the Sardaukar. Uh, he defeats them in battle, confronts the Emperor, uh, forces him to abdicate the throne, And then marries the Emperor's daughter, the Princess Irulan, um, essentially becoming uh, the Galactic Emperor. But at the end of the book, Paul realises that in the ways that he has used his Ben training and his uh, training as a a noble leader of a house, uh, he has started something he can't stop, which is the Fremen Jihad, um, and that their armies are going to spill out from Arrakis, take over the entire Galactic Empire, uh, cause like a lot of a lot of death and a lot of war, um, all in his name, and he realizes even he is not powerful enough to stop what is about to happen, and that's where Dune finishes off, and then moves on to the following book, Dune Messiah. So that's oh, whew, a quick run through of all of it, and I'm sure I've missed for, I've missed important characters, I've missed important things, but read the book, watch the film, you know. Um, yeah, Jason, you're not book, here
1: for a, an exhaustive plot run through this is yeah. just enough to hang your coat on
0: yeah exactly there's there's big sandworms you know i've missed that bit they're there i didn't say it in the plot but we know they're there everyone that. Desert full there.
1: of drugs big worms One more do you want yeah
0: exactly so with that covered we're going to talk about the idea of dune as anti-sci-fi and there's an interesting comparison to make uh from the off to uh, isaac asimov who is um Probably, if, if you could say that Herb, Frank Herbert is thought of as a sort of a uh, progenitor of, of modern sci-fi, a lot of people see Asimov as like the grandfather, the big name, the guy who came up with all the modern sci-fi um, standards and tropes that are built into the very foundation of how we sort of consume sci-fi as a media, uh, as a medium, rather.
1: And foundation is a choice of word. Mm. Because Asimov's arguably most famous work is the foundation series, um, which is a kind of foundational science fiction text. Yeah. Um, was that where he brought in the laws of robotics?
0: No, I think the laws of robotics came in with iRobot. Um, but the foundation series (laughs) is, uh, I feel like there's, there's a point where some authors you think of like jake uh, like tolkien i think asimov was actually inspired by tolkien in the creation of this sort of um create a universe and then write a story to, f- to fill it um and that's mm-hmm. what asimov did with the foundation um which was a he was also inspired by um the uh oh, what's his name gibson gibson's downfall of the roman empire which is an enormous tome about the, the last years of the Roman Empire And he wanted to create Oh a so a
1: different Gibson from the William Gibson of science fiction fame
0: Yes I think so I'm going to have to I'll have to look at Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire And who wrote that very quickly right now or, <laughs> Of the Roman Yes ah not Gibson Gibbon. Come up with more names Yes Gibbon Edward Gibbon I was close even better it is it is a better name actually so uh yes and asimov wanted to create his own version of that and he created the foundation series which is about another huge galaxy spanning empire that is decaying um but the 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 series creates this idea of psycho history um based heavily on the philosophical school of determinism which is that all events around us are affected, not necessarily by a deity, but by a larger controlling outside force. And in Asimov's case, that is psychohistory. The Foundation charts thousands of years of the fall of this dying galactic empire, then it covers the Dark Age afterwards, and then the rise of another huge empire. And the main characters in the Foundation series, their, their main goal is to create a scenario in which the dark ages are reduced from being like 5,000 years to only 1,000 years. Um, It's an absolutely enormous series, um, but it covers in a very similar way to like uh, history books. It covers events and sweeping changes and things in a very dispassionate and sort of bird's eye view of things. And they were written in the fifties and only about 15 years after that, Frank Herbert wrote Dune. Um, And... uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think arguably, uh, yeah, it changed the way that sci-fi was being produced and written at the time, because as we spoke about earlier, inserting these ideas of the actions of individuals, inserting the idea of mythos and in, in sort of pseudo-sci-fi magic and um, sort of a mysticism to things that wasn't really uh, present in the very clean and secular sci-fi written at the time.
1: And I think it's interesting that these Stories are being written in the 50s and 60s because these stories of decaying and collapsing empires and the turmoil that, you know, results in that change in power and the emergence of new powers. Can we think of anything that might have been happening in the 20th century that might have uh, potentially inspired some of these thoughts? (laughs) You know, you've got a lot of the old European empires... Um, doing Finishing off a lot of their crumbling in the 20th century um, mm-hmm. you know, Britain was letting go of the last of its Well, not the last But some, m- many of the last of its uh, colonies and possessions mm. It still has a couple around the world for some reason um, Where else know. are we going to get our artifacts? <laughs> Come on, we can steal from, it, from all over the world um, Britain was letting go of many of the last of its you know, uh, possessions around the world. You've got the Russian Empire collapsing at the beginning of the 20th century and the the birth of the Soviet Union from that. You've got the, the meteoric rise of America after World War II being on the winning side but never really having had much damage due to it and being able to make money kind of rebuilding Europe after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting that you have these two contrasting perspectives on similar processes. You know, you've got the, the kind of quite acerbic, top-down Asimov approach, and you've got the Herbert kind of uh, human experience, but focusing on, you know, quote-unquote, important people. Yeah. Um, almost like those two conflicting uh, theories of history, you know, the trends versus great people.
0: I think Asimov was very much thinking about that when he was putting, putting together his works. He was also very close with Robert Heinlein, who wrote uh, Starship Troopers, itself a great sci-fi book about the, uh, the impacts of fascism and imperialism in a sci-fi world.
1: Although I've, I've heard some interesting, um, some interesting discussions of Heinlein and um, kind of where, where his emphasis lay and where his, um, where his approach came yeah. from. I, I, um, because the film Starship Troopers and the book Starship Troopers are wildly. Oh yeah, yeah, books. yeah. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely shades of of.
0: I think that I, I think we're with Starship Troopers, which you know, it's another one of those things where it's like we need to do an episode. <coughs> like, the book is yeah is very is very pro military, but I've always read it in a weird way of being like really weirdly tongue in cheek, not as not as campy and tongue in cheek as the film, but like a very much like a maybe this is just me, but. And I know we're digressing, but it's so down the lens, uh, Starship Troopers, the book, about like, war's great, that it's kind of like, you
1: can't be this, like, you surely you can't be this, like, serious with it. I, I don't know, man, because if you look at a lot of the literature that the ruling classes of the West were consuming hmm. in the early 20th and much of the 19th and 18th <laughs> centuries, um, it was very kind of barefaced uh unironic kind of glorification of empire and you know the the duty of uh of of men to go to war and do their part and Mm. yeah well i think
0: to 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 drag myself and the podcast kicking and screaming back to
1: june oh yeah we have diverged from dune <laughs> <laughs> but i i think that
0: um I, I if if we if we wanted i mean that's another that's another great way to start the comparatives because if you think about the the inherent militarism in a lot of science fiction in the 50s and 60s um which of you know especially pulp sci-fi which is very much about shoot the aliens kill the ah oh, here's brave humans going out into the galaxy and facing alien foes um and it wasn't really until you know we got to Uh, well, in terms of mass media, you got to things like Star Trek, where I was like, maybe we should try being friends with the aliens. Um,
1: Friends, in air quotes of Shatner. I was (laughs) going to say, Bill Shatner (laughs) took that to the nth degree. (laughs)
0: That's a certain type of diplomacy, for sure. To sort of tease apart the the differences between Herbert's Dune and and the rest of, like, 50s and 60s sci-fi, not the rest of it, but a vast majority of it, um, as we've already mentioned, there's a focus in the books on socio-politics. I think reading it, if you were reading Dune, having read, for example, things like Game of Thrones, books of that sort of ma- that uh, level, you w- you would recognise in it the same kind of political backbiting and plots within plots, and people instead of people walking through rose gardens and plotting to assassinate other ones, they're walking through spaceships and plotting to assassinate people. Um, uh, and there's a almost a in terms of focusing on the the social rather than the technological there's an almost not necessarily disdain but a, a hand waviness to the technology that that is that is present in dune um there's a lot of cool stuff there's things like the ornithopters which are um planes that oh, yeah. that, that fly like dragonflies um because i mean i think even when he was writing it helicopters were just about sort of, you know becoming mainstream things but uh ornithopters are a lot cooler <laughs>
1: not really yeah although I guess technically they wouldn't technically be ornithopters because helicopter means spiral wing ornithopter means bird wing and these don't flap like bird wings they flap like dragonfly wings so I guess it would be uh, oh is it orthopterans which are dragonflies let me do a quick bit of googling
0: or well, maybe i'm allowing myself to be influenced by the new film because i think the i think maybe the original ones oh. were just flapping wings
1: ah i see
0: and i think in the fil- the new film they are dragonfly-esque
1: yeah and i think they just call them thopters ah oh yes anisoptera is the uh Is the insect order that includes dragonflies? This is this
0: is why this podcast is great because we have you know we got we got a history nerd and we have a biology nerd, so you (laughs) you can really bring in two attack from two different sides here.
1: Um, Yeah, we get we get the STEM kids and the history nerds.
0: Absolutely. So uh, yeah, although there's some cool tech, I don't think there's not a massive focus on it. A lot of it is sort of like uh, until you get to the later books when it gets a bit more. technical uh it's sort of like how why do people need spice to travel through space because
1: well isn't it that um that because because the interstellar travel is navigated by mutant brain people they need the desert drugs to make to kind of soup up their mutant brains enough that they can make the calculations to cross, you know, complicated interstellar space routes. Yep, that's exactly right. Why don't they just use a sat nav? <laughs> and before any any like uh, physicists at me, yes, I know that satellites would beam down onto a planet, and so if you're actually leaving the planet, then they wouldn't be very useful. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm joking. But why don't they use mechanical means? Why do they need this expensive drug that they have to fight over all the time?
0: But the navigators, the, the navigators of the Guild don't really even come into it in a big way until the later books either. Um, uh, it's sort of, I think, as far as I recall, it's sort of just been like, it's sort of given it some, some, um, some lip service. It's like, oh, we need this to, to, the Navigators need this to fly through space. Um, and then waved away. And then there's other things like... Um, Everyone has lasers, everyone has... Uh... But,
1: but, but circling back to the Navigators, though... Yeah. Because um, I think in the notes, you've written something about why they might need the Navigators rather than just kind of popping it into their future garment.
0: The Butler in Jihad thing. Is that what you're talking about?
1: I mean, it's an incredible name. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: so the Butler in Jihad is is a, is a big... Well, again, not really a big thing, but it's 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 a thing that is referred to back a lot, which is the idea that at some point in the, because Dune is set tens and tens and tens of thousands of years in the future, um, there was a point at which mankind had created um, artificial intelligence and there had been a rebellion by artificial intelligence and most computerized machines. Um, and as a result of that, humanity is so terrified of it happening again that they do not use computers or AI in any shape or form. Instead, they rely on uh, individuals trained sort of to be as reactive, intelligent, uh, reactive and, intelligent and smart as, as a machine um, and to have like eidetic memories and be able to calculate things instantaneously. Um, and they're either the navigators uh, who, are a, who are a strain of that, or uh, a set of people called the Mentats, uh, who train themselves to be able to you know, re- recollect information instantaneously, again, perform hugely complex mathematical uh, computations. And of course, uh, Paul being Paul, he also becomes a Mentat, really.
1: Oh, it's one of those. He's one of those main characters who's like, oh, I get this power, and I get this power, and I get this power, and I get to be king of this and king of that.
0: Paul is the only character in the universe, I think, who is not only the Kwisatz Haderach, not only the Mwadib, not only um, uh, you know a noble trained in all those kinds of ways, but he also is a mentor as well. So he has everything, basically.
1: And uh, a little glimpse behind the curtain, dear listener, the amount of faff that it took to try and get my normally plug-and-play mic working before this recording, <laughs> Yeah, I am... Begging to be transported to the Herbert universe. <laughs> if we could just dictate this podcast to, right. like, a person with, you know, magically mutated brain power, um, and then they could just go around telling it to people.
0: Either that, or like a Flintstones one, <laughs> where you just talk, like, you tell it to a parrot, and the parrot tells
1: everyone the, the podcast. So we've got this kind of divorce from almost the kind of expected tropes of sci-fi with Mm. you know there's no robots there's not kind of a huge amount of computation uh you know mechanically done um and it's and that really brings the focus back to people and and the groups and the interactions between them
0: yeah one thing i really like about it as well is this this thing that is it's brought up, um, it's one of the few things that has a big impact is that although future technology has evolved to the point where people have portable shields and laser weapons, because the interaction between lasers and shields, they basically make it the same material. So if you fire a laser at a shield, it causes a, a tiny nuclear explosion effectively. Um, doesn't, you don't see that in the film, um, but in the book it's like, never fire a laser at someone wearing a shield because if you do, um, it will explode. Uh, and kill a lot of people in the surrounding area so lots of people fight with swords because swords can penetrate through the, the 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 frequency of the shield um and i you know they introduced the idea of a futuristic society using um like swords and uh martial arts uh instead of using ranged weaponry which hmm hmm where where hmm, <laughs> hmm a lot of people saw that and thought that was a good idea from a nobler age, <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of like te- there's a lot of um, anti-tech stuff going on in, in the setting before you even get to to the the roles of individuals and, in fact, the the ecology of Arrakis. Um, which I think
1: aesthetically ties it more to you know familiar stories of collapsing empires as well.
0: Yeah, so uh, cool. Dune includes a, a, a huge cast of characters. Um, you know, Paul himself, Jessica, Gigletto, Charney, uh, Duncan Idaho, Gurney Halbach, um, Stilgar, the leader of the Fremen until Paul takes over. They're all large, well not necessarily larger than life characters, but they're all important characters through which you view the lens of the story. Um, and all of them in their own way have a major impact on the larger universe, despite most of them only really, exi- only really doing a lot of their work on the planet of Arrakis. And that brings on to the next point about Dune and its uh, comparison to other sci-fi because uh, Herbert loves, loved ecology, loved environmentalism, and it's, it's really, it's really a, you're really able to see it when you read the book and in some ways see it bleed through when you watch it as an adaptation.
1: Now, obviously, a story based almost entirely on a desert planet is going to have water and the scarcity and availability of it as a key factor, and you know, water on Arrakis is one of the is is the most precious thing. Other than the the spice, the melange that is extracted from the planet, the actual value to the people on the planet, it's water. Um, and you know, there are lots of things to be said about. The kind of real world connections of resource scarcity, uh, under imperialism, and who gets access to those resources, and and what resources are extracted, and what resources are kept, like in the uh, the imperial uh, the imperial province. So, let's look at, you know, for example, the British Empire. The British Empire had a lot of colonies that were hot and relatively arid and what the empire what the british empire did was construct infrastructure to control where that water went who had access to it and to funnel it towards the interests of empire so if you were a uh, you know uh, uh, a, an imperial uh, actor if you were someone acting on behalf of the empire you had access to more if You were running an industry that the empire deemed important or profited from, then you would have access to more. And water is still used to this day in in imperialism as as violence, as control. Um, You know, it's used as a weapon of war as well. It's used, for example, in Palestine. Um, You know, control over access to to fresh water and uh, destruction of water infrastructure, is used as a weapon of genocide. Um, so it's this really comes through in Dune as well. You see lots of kind of little vignettes and moments where, for example, there are these trees in the palace that are fed the equivalent of, I think each tree drinks the equivalent of... Uh, was it a hundred people or something? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, yeah. um, and the decision, you know, it's never even questioned that these trees should be watered and kept alive at the expense of many, many, many humans. Mm. Um, it's just deemed that they are part of tradition. They are part of the power structure. <laughs> Hello, Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't the cat... Friend of the show, well, cat of Alex. Friend of the
0: show, my cat, who I'm going to have to let
1: out now. Come on then. <laughs> Ollie, how did you get into our multi-million pound recording studio? <laughs> so, so did you want to say something about water? Yeah, and I, I was going to
0: add to it that I think there's a, there's a really interesting... I know what it, there's a really thought-provoking comparison between... The role of water and the role of spice on Arrakis, because... Um, uh spice is everywhere on arrakis it's it's infused with the desert the entire the entire planet is covered in it uh, uh, until certain <clears throat> events in a, month, a few books away down the way um but water is so precious and there's a quote that um, from the book that, uh, It's so precious that a man's flesh is his own but his water belongs to the tribe um the fremen in on arrakis um, prioritize and seawater is so precious that it 's recycled from their dead, uh, but spice, which is so precious to the rest of the galaxy and is all around the fremen um, they you know they see it as special, but they don 't see it you know they this this idea of like the prioritization of things that actually give you life and matter like water um, versus the resources that are only meant for consumption, like spice
1: yeah, and specifically meant for consumption by Uh, the empire and and its infrastructure for transport and industry. So where, you know, I I know I've been asking a lot of rhetorical questions this episode, but where else have we seen desert places with uh, abundant resources that are scarce in other places uh, and wars get fought over this thing that is very valuable for transport? Hmm? Again, you know, oil in the Middle East, um, you know, we can say that we invade places because they have invisible weapons of mass destruction, or we can say that we invade places because they have a dictator, but really, we're invading places because they have either a resource we want, like oil, or they provide us access to power and influence in the area with a view to acquiring this resource
0: yeah and you can't let the people who are indigenous to the place uh uh in one word control in other words nationalize their their uh their their abundant resources and in fact it's that threat that means that it's that threat that spoilers uh paul can become the emperor at the end of the of the book because he threatens to cut 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 off the entire supply
1: of spice to the galaxy well, and that's why OPEC exists. Yeah, <laughs> um, and you know, just circling back to your your point about like heaven for heaven forbid that um you know that indigenous people control their own resources. Uh, after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, um, a huge amount of money was put in by firms like Halliburton and stuff to rebuild the oil infrastructure. Do you know what part of the oil infrastructure? was not rebuilt for a long time the metering part the part that tells you how much oil is being taken out and where it goes um so again uh, uh, you know life imitating art li- imitating life while we talk <laughs> about this and
0: obviously this is something that that Helena uh, and i talk about quite a lot uh because we're conscientious people who care about the world um but this book was written in nineteen sixty five you know when everything was great if you were living in the u s uh you know you're consuming I'm white yeah m white yeah i in that in that terms of like Conspicuous consumption, kind of thing. You know, the planet's got infinite resources. We can smoke as much as we want. We can pour as much pollutants into the air as we want. Who cares if if the fish are dying? That kind of stuff. And this was written by a guy in, in 1965. So you you, know, you you kind of expect this kind of thing from 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 what is now known as climate fiction um, books about the catastrophic um, consequences of, of climate change. But um, in fact, a lot of ecologists have argued that June was one of the first ever climate fiction books because it tackles these these subjects while also still being wrapped up in a, an extremely compelling science fiction story.
1: And also, while really inextricably linking the politics of it, because that is a really key thing in discussing all sorts of environmental and scientific issues. People like to think sometimes that science and the environment are apolitical and that they are purely kind of they exist in a vacuum but actually that that is a complete falsehood you know the politics and the 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 humanity of how we interact with the environment and resources and how those are distributed and how those are used or not used and extracted have massive 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 implications for the effect on the world and the future
0: yeah, and we haven't even mentioned the sandworms. <laughs> Someone, Someone's going to be listening to this, and they'll be like, talk about the sandworms.
1: Well, uh, basically, sandworms are the orcas of the desert. You know, there was, the, there was that period of Comrade Orca when all those orcas were sinking those yachts. Well, the sandworms uh, are the Comrade Orcas of the desert. So the... the Is it the Shai Halud? Is that what they're called? Um, So the sandworms are a a, a native fauna species to Arrakis. And they are exactly what they sound like. They are these huge, immense worms living under the desert, um, bigger than a train. Think the, the size of a large train tunnel. And they... Uh, burrow under the sand and they detect their prey via vibrations in the ground. And uh, they have a particular fondness for the spice harvester machines that uh, House Harkonnen and House Atreides use in the desert. So the rumbling of these big machines, I don't know whether they are attracted in terms of this might be something delicious, or whether it's a kind of, oh, this annoying noise, I need to destroy it. Um, do they go into detail in the book about that? I think it's mostly they're attracted to the, the noise,
0: um, but it can still be an allegory, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the kind of the planet fighting back against its own ruination and exploitation.
0: And the sandworms themselves are a crucial part of the creation of spice as well and the whole wait
1: don't tell me spice is worm poo
0: <laughs> i think it's they, they they are they help in the creation of spice i don't think it's necessarily their poo but i i
1: i it's worm sweat
0: i have to confess i ha- i'm <laughs> i'm due my read this year of Dune, so i'm i'm at least a year out from the last time i read it um but they definitely are a major part and uh yeah it's uh it's and as as i mentioned before this this book although you know being a huge sci-fi epic in, in in air quotes. You know, it's all about the film. It's all about Arrakis um, and how people interact with the planet and how the planet affects the, the
1: the the galaxy in different ways. So how do they interact with the planet? So we've talked about, you know, the, the galactic empire extracting this resource um, and, you know, using it for its own, meat, own ends and the kind of the feudal politics of of who gets parachuted in and the indigenous people's kind of relationship with the planet. Um, but how, how does, how does that manifest in the the kind of the, the experiences of those key characters? Cause if we're talking about um, the, how important individuals are in this story, we've talked about groups a lot, but for example, uh, you know you've got paul so we've been talking about paul Atreides, this princeling on this planet and his journey to messianic status um but yeah how does how does how does that kind of speak to the relationship with place
0: one of the, this is also another thing that fits in to the idea of dune being a an, an anti sci-fi Um, because uh, there is a strong uh, interweave throughout Dune, throughout the setting, but also throughout throughout the book, of um, religion and people's ties to their faith and people's ties to where they live um, based on that religion. So, for example, the Fremen, who are uh, described in the book as uh, Zen Sunni, um, are... Believe Iraqis, Sorry, Zen Sunni. Zen Sunni. They are Sunni. Buddhist Muslim. Yes, Buddhist Muslim. Cool. Um, uh, are tied to Arrakis by their belief in it being a, uh, a holy planet, the Shai Halud being a manifestation of the maker, who is their, their deity, um, and Spice being a, a um, an extremely precious and, and holy resource in a way. Not as precious as water, but still sort of being a, um, part of their... Uh, their lives in a in a in a in a in
1: a deep way, and if you live in a in a planet that is suffused with a psychoactive, you know, substance, a, a kind of arcane psychoactive substance that's got to kind of engender a really profound relationship with how individuals and groups' minds work, and 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 that relationship with place,
0: and it's a. It, Herbert uh, was, I, I don't want to speak to the, 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 the spirituality of other sci-fi writers, but he certainly um, was an extremely spiritual man. Um, he uh, spoke very often with uh, two individuals called Ralph and Irene Slattery, who were two uh, Jungian psychologists and also Zen Buddhists, um, and suffused a lot of his work in the book with tenets of both Zen Buddhism uh, and also Islam, uh, mixed in with aspects from, from multiple different world religions, including Sufi mysticism, uh, Judaism, Hinduism, and Catholicism. Um, every Nearly every character in the book is religious in some way, shape, or form. They believe in, in some kind of faith. Uh, you even have, I think, in the books, uh, what's, the, I guess the word is, uh, not neo, 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 neo-future Catholics. Um <laughs> who the the holdovers from that religion um in the same way that you get things like that in 40k as well as as well um you know which is you know if anyone who's listening to this and uh hasn't seen dune or hasn't read dune and has read a lot of 40k you'll be like oh this all sounds very familiar so yeah well (laughs) um but yeah and and, in, in dune as well there's there's well i guess you could arguably call it magic um there's prophecy uh prophets and abilities like uh, foresight, um, psychic powers, uh, telekinesis, telepathy, all these kinds of things. Psychic domination mm, given to uh, usually as a result of inhalation or ingestion of spice. Um, and Herbert actually, I found a quote from him that was really interesting because, you know, he when often when book when uh, media introduces the idea of prophecy, it runs into this wall of uh, how do you create suspense with, with prophecy? Because if you know what's going to happen, then how do you create a good story? Um, but uh, he wrote uh, that it's it should always be a paradox. So, and this is the quote from him and I quote, uh, for the Delphic Oracle to perform, it must tangle itself in a web of predestination. Yet predestination negates surprises and in fact sets up a mathematically enclosed universe whose limits are always inconsistent and always encountering the unprovable it's like a koan a, a koan a zen mindbreaker it's like the cretan epimenides saying all cretans are liars so he's sort of saying that uh in in, in fact in the middle of that quote sets up a mathematically enclosed universe which is exactly what asimov's foundation series is um where uh you inherently create a paradox and i think the point he's getting at there is that If you create infallible prophecy, then you ruin the idea of story. But the idea of prophecy being fallible at the the base level makes it very, very interesting.
1: Yeah, it's leaning into the paradox. Yeah. And making it a feature, not a bug.
0: Yeah. And it's that, uh, in fact, a lot of the later books, um, as Paul becomes disconnected from the world around him, um, falls into this idea of being omnipotent and omnipresent. Um, is more about, is him trying to navigate his way around the things that he can see uh, and how he affects that. And mean the the book itself, as I said earlier, finishes with Paul realizing that the Fremen are going to set out on a galaxy-conquering jihad, as it's referred to in the book, um, and millions of people are going to die, but he can't stop it. Um, So, (laughs) he <laughs> lets it happen um, but yeah and that that that's uh yeah there's a there's a it's an interesting way that the uh that uh, that june um is different to to the sci-fi of the time
1: and i think that is a perfect place to lead into our next episode um when we're talking about the fremen and paul and their relationship and and how that relates to to real world uh, people, real world communities, and real world depictions of those people and communities. Um, but this has been a really fascinating little dive into sci fi, not sci fi. Um, feudal, magical, uh, individual, a technological sci fi.
0: Yeah. And also, read Dune, it's great. Don't listen to my
1: mum. <laughs> well once you've done this year's read can I borrow it
0: <laughs> yeah definitely I've got the trilogy I've got, the, got the, the trilogy as a book so absolutely sweet
1: alright well you heard it here maybe we'll do uh, ne- next year's update when I've actually read the book <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, we'll see you for the next episode of Lorax Well, we're going to be talking about the Fremen and uh, Dune's Middle Eastern influences
1: and Orientalism baby Edward Said is in the house right till next time bye three two one go (laughs) sorry I don't know why the claps please me so much